We turn in God's Word this evening to Mark's Gospel once again. This evening we're turning to Mark chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 22 through 30. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. Let's hear then the breathed out word of God to us this evening. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, Tell no one about him. Thus far the reading of God's word. I invite you to keep the passage open as we'll be referring to a number of points uh, in this section we have read. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we have read your word. We know that this word is true. You have inspired the writing of it. You have kept this word until this day, this point, this time. You knew before even the first ray of light fell on that first day of creation that this day would be occurring in each one of our lives and that this passage would be before us in this evening hour. And so we would pray, Father, that we might listen even more intently to hear the truth of your word proclaimed tonight as you have brought us to this place, this time, to this word for our hearts and for our lives. We pray that we might Father, hear you speak to us in Christ's name. And God's people say again, amen. I want to look at three things from this passage tonight, all beginning with the letter M. First of all, the man that we're introduced to in verse 22. Secondly, the miracle that we see taking place in verses 23 through 26. But then the message that is happening here, which... I believe, is found in verses 27 through 30. That's why we've included that section along with it. First of all, we have the man. We're in a new place, and that's important for us to note. Uh, a place is indicated. We are told that we are now in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is located on the near northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, 
but it borders Gentile territory. In other words, it's on the edge. You have Bethsaida, and then you have Gentile territory. As we Jesus journeys further to the north in this passage to Caesarea Philippi, we certainly are traveling, as it were, deep into Gentile territory as we go. But right now, we're, we're on the edge. Philip is from this town, the disciple of Jesus, as well as it being the hometown of both Peter and Andrew. John 1, I think it's 42, tells us that. So it's the hometown, at least to three of the disciples, at least this is the place where they were born and raised, Bethsaida. It's also the place where the feeding of the 5,000 took place a few chapters ago. We have been here often. We have been here many times. Jesus has performed a countless amount of miracles. And I will come back to that in a few moments. But we, we need to know that. We're back in Jewish territory as we come to Bethsaida. What do we else do we learn about the man other than that he's from this particular area? We learn that he is blind. Why? We are not told. Did he ever have sight? We're not told. Some commentators think that perhaps he did at one point in time and lost it, but there's nothing in the passage here that is unique to Mark that would indicate to us what might have been uh, the background to this particular man's blindness. But there are certainly uh, indications from the time period in which this is taken that blindness seemed to be pretty prevalent. That although it is, it is somewhat prevalent today, it seems like we, we hear of it less and less in terms of somebody who is young and blind, people becoming older and older and losing their eyesight, seems to be uh, perhaps a little more common because people are living so much longer. But in terms of just blindness, my guess is there might be several of our children here who might never have actually seen a blind person in their lifetime. In Jesus' day, as we read through the various gospel accounts, it seems like blindness was very prevalent. But of course, that would be true, right? There are no salves, there are no medicines, so any sort of infection that would set into the eyes could have the potential of blinding a person. There are no prenatal-type care uh, things going on, so anything that might be uh, important for the development of the eyesight as far as mothers are concerned are unknown at this given time and stage of history. Besides, we also have uh, the basic uncleanliness of the society. There is a lot of dirt. There is a lot of filth around. Now, that's not like there isn't dirt and filth now, but we have a lot of habits that hopefully keep us from it. We wash our hands frequently. We have hand sanitizers that some people uh, go a little bit overboard with. But we have these things available to deal with the germs and everything else. These are not available to the folks, especially regular going folks, um, uh, common folks, especially those who are living uh, somewhat in the country. 
as is probably indicated by this passage as well. So there might be lots of reasons. But there is another reason as well. And that's because a, a lot of times, because of the climate in which they were in, their, their eyes could become very dry and crusty. And oftentimes they would actually shut because of that crustiness that came upon the eyes. That would oftentimes bring on flies. And so there was the constant fighting off of flies from the eyes to protect. But of course we know flies bring all sorts of problems and diseases. So there's all sorts of things going on that may be an explanation as to why it is that blindness seemed to occur so frequently during this time. Maybe it's there for spiritual reasons, which we'll get to in a few moments as well. As far as this man's blindness, we are not told at all. What was the cause? What's the background? Other than the fact that he is blind, he is unable to see at all. Another thing to note from verse 22 about the man is that he is brought by others. He does not come on his own. He does not ask others to bring him. He is brought by others. And if you look at verse 22 carefully, they are the ones who begged Jesus to touch him. It is the others who come who are saying, Jesus, please touch this man. He is blind. Jesus, please work a miracle on this man. He is blind. But the man says nothing. There are no words that are coming from this man before Jesus begins the part of the miracle in verse 23. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, one of the things that we can make of it is he is not like Bartimaeus. In a few chapters, in chapter 10, we're going to come across Bartimaeus, who is at the gate there in, Jer in Jericho, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me! Son of David, have mercy on me! He is a man who is blind, who desires Jesus to heal. This man is silent. There are no words coming from him. He's not asking Jesus to heal him. There is no indication of any faith whatsoever on the part of this gentleman. Others have even brought him. One almost gets the feeling that in reading that others brought him, there might have been even some unwillingness on his part. And perhaps who can blame the man, right? Okay? You go to enough people, enough people try to, oh, I got the cure for your blindness, I got the cure for this, I got the cure from that. Pretty soon, it's like, I don't want to go anywhere, I don't want to see anybody, I don't want to try any I don't want my hopes raised at all. I am not interested. I'm not interested to go to this Jesus person. I'm not interested in what this Jesus person has to, oh, he's doing wonderful things. I'm not interested. I've been disappointed before. I don't want to be disappointed again. Who can blame the man? He says nothing. But it's rather interesting that in spite of that, the miracle occurs anyway. 
So oftentimes we hear Jesus say something about a person's faith has healed you. Go your way. Well, it's pretty obvious this man has no faith. That word is not mentioned in the passage anywhere. And yet Jesus is going to perform the miracle. So let's secondly, let's look at what Jesus does here. This is unique. This is a, a two-stage miracle, as some commentators call it. I don't quite prefer that title, uh, but because it sounds like Jesus was sort of incomplete with the first, and he had to do something secondly to, to, to deal with it. This is a miracle in the sovereignty of Jesus. I want you to note the following. First of all, verse 23. And he, that, that is Jesus, and he took the blind man by the hand. Now, when, when we've been in Mark, and in this chapter in particularly, we've been focused on the compassion of Jesus. Here it is again, isn't it? He took him by the hand. He doesn't say to the man, follow me. The man can't. Right? The man's blind. He doesn't, he doesn't know where Jesus is going. To say, Jesus, follow me. Listen to my footsteps. Come on, work hard. Follow me. Listen to me as I shuffle through the dirt here. Come on, follow me. He takes the man by the hand. Jesus is not adapting to the man. Jesus is being compassionate to the man. The only way for the man to follow Jesus is for Jesus to make, take the man by the hand. Secondly, not only does Jesus take him by the hand, gently guiding, affirming, compassionately but notice what it says in 23 and led him out of the village he leads him away from Bethsaida he leads him away from the crowd this too is the compassion of Jesus how often do you think this man has been the center of attention not attention in a good way, but attention in a negative way. If we're all honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, when we've seen somebody who is blind, what do we all do? We watch. Now, we don't watch everybody. We don't focus our attention on other people. But when there's a blind person, what do we do? We watch. Now, probably the least amongst us is watching to see, are they going to trip? Are they going to fall? What's going to happen? What are they going to bump into? Certainly, those, there are those in the world who are that way, right? Hey, maybe they're going to fall. Let's put something in their way so they trip. After all, they can't see it. Maybe sometimes out of the best of us, we watch out of curiosity. How do they do this? How do they make their way around? How can they do this with, without being able to see? 
you know, what a marvelous thing they have with that stick. And, and we just become fascinated by watching them walk across the street with the stick. But we watch. Do you not think they know that they're being watched? See, even when it's gentle, even when we're, we're just being curious, there is a sort of setting them aside, holding them up, watching them as we would watch no other people. Jesus takes them away from the village. You've been watched all your life, fella. People have had their eye on you, watching you. Now they're going to be watching this miracle to see what happens. They're going to watch your reaction. They're going to watch what I do to you. You've had enough of people watching you. Let me take you by the hand. And let's get out of here. Let's get out of the village. Let's get away from the crowd. This too, you see, is the compassion of Jesus. But then we read of something that we find a little uncomfortable, don't we? Come to verse, in verse 23, he takes him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, it's kind of like, that's kind of gross, that's kind of disgusting, to spit upon his eyes. Well, it probably doesn't mean the man is there and Jesus walks up and goes, spits in his face. What it probably means is that Jesus wet his fingers and put it on his eyes. The man's eyes are shut. Man's eyes are dry. I'm going to loosen them. I'm going to open them. And then Jesus puts his hand on the man. He laid his hand on the man. And you see this man walking through the town of Bethsaida? What's going to generally happen as he makes his way through town? He's going to bump into people, right? Hey, what are you doing, buddy? Come on, watch where you're going. He's had hands laid on him, all right, but hands of roughness, hands of abuse, hands of anger. But Jesus' hand is different. lays his hands upon the man. You know, as you read through the Gospels, that touch of Jesus, it's, it's, it's not that, it, it's not that we, we have to sensationalize the touch as if it's the touch that heals. No, it's the touch of his compassion. He is willing to touch those who are the untouchable. 
He is willing to put his hands upon the shoulders, upon the head, in the hand of those that no one else wants anything to do with. Those who for years have longed for a human being to touch them with compassion. Jesus does so. You folks, you know I don't agree with the theology of Mother Teresa. I don't agree with the theology at all. But I do see in the work that she did, I do see that which Jesus was doing here in the Gospels, touching the untouchable. And in that conveying so much. I think we, we sometimes forget how much can be communicated by us as Christians just by human contact. There are so many in this world that no one wants to touch. And Jesus lays his hands upon the man and then asks, do you see anything? What happens? The man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, when you read this in the Greek, there, there is a little bit of, of in his tone there, and the manner in which he is speaking of excitement. Perhaps read a little bit more like, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It is from this that some people, some commentators believe the man had sight at one time and lost it, else how does he know exactly what a tree walking would look like? And maybe there's some validity to that. But the question is, wasn't Jesus able to heal this guy right away? Was this blindness so strong that the power of Jesus is, oh, I expected the answer I see clearly. My friends, if that's your thought as you read through this miracle, if in some way you think that this miracle demonstrates to us the limited power of Jesus, let me declare to you boldly, clearly, that is not the case. This was planned by Jesus. This was purposeful by Jesus. The man is allowed to see what Jesus desires for him to see. Could Jesus have healed this man without spitting on his eyes? Absolutely. Could Jesus have healed this man without touching him? Absolutely. Could Jesus have healed this man without going through this stage? Absolutely. Jesus could have said, see, and the man would see. Actually, Jesus doesn't even need to utter the word. He could have just willed it and the man could have seen. But you see, Jesus is teaching through this miracle. There's something being taught to us. 
So when the man answers that basically what he is saying is, I can see, but I do not see clearly. I can see something, but I cannot distinguish clearly what it is that I am seeing. Jesus then laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight is restored. And he saw everything clearly. There is a reason and a purpose for which Jesus is doing the miracle in this form, at this time, at this moment, in his ministry. But then once again, look at verse 26. Here's the end of the miracle. He sends them home. Don't go to the village. Why do we not want this man to go to the village? Wouldn't this man make a wonderful testimony to the city of Bethsaida? Wouldn't this just be another sign that they could look at and see and testify about the greatness of Jesus? Wouldn't this be another great man to serve as a witness for all those unbelievers? Keep your finger here at Matthew chapter 8 and turn with me to, or to Mark chapter 8, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Go to verse 20. Here's the reason why he sends the man home. Then he began to denounce, that is Jesus, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. This man going back to the village, to a place that was unrepentant, even though Jesus has performed signs and wonders for them. Another man. What would that have done? But only added to their condemnation. Jesus is actually sparing Bethsaida more condemnation by sending this man home. If he goes back, they're not going to repent. And what happens? The condemnation of God upon them is even greater. Just go home. The mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus for an unrepentant city is demonstrated in the words, don't go to the village, just go home. So now we come to the third part. What is the message of this? Well, let me read verses 27 through 30 again. Because this is where Mark puts it in the context. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here is the message. One, salvation is individual. See, that's why there's no note of faith noted about this man. There's no note from Jesus that says, go on home, your faith has made you whole. As far as we know, the man doesn't believe. At least if we simply evaluate it based upon Scripture, there is no indication that the man comes to any amount of faith or belief. Oh, he has friends who believe. He has friends who bring him to Jesus. He has friends who, who desire that Jesus work a miracle on him. He has friends who trust Jesus. He has friends who have some sort of faith in Jesus. But you see, your friends cannot save you. Your parents cannot save you. Your family cannot save you. Because salvation is an individual matter. Each person has to deal with the question, and who do you say that I am? That's why the miracle occurs in the place it does, the way it does. Because Jesus is showing, here is an individual person who needs to come to know who I am. I don't even need his friends who brought him to testify. I need to hear it from him. Each of us must give an account of who Jesus is. Each of us is responsible for that. Salvation is never by the group. Salvation is never by ethnic clan. Salvation is never by denomination. Salvation is always personal and individual. That may be part of the reason why this miracle is done in such an individual way. There is nothing like it in the rest of Jesus' miracles. Jesus' point being, each of you is an individual. And each of you needs to be dealt with individually. Who do you say that I am? Secondly, it's obvious from verses 27 through 30 that many do not see clearly. Many do not see Jesus clearly for who he is. They are like, you see, the man. They are like the man. They, they have been under Jesus' healing. They have been under Jesus' compassion. Jesus has been walking with them. Jesus has been talking with them. Jesus has been teaching them. Jesus has been healing them. 
but they are like the man. I see people and they look like trees walking. That's the very same answer that the disciples give. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist. Are they seeing clearly? Are they clearly seeing who Jesus is? If the question is, who is Jesus, and the answer that some people give are John the Baptist, are they really seeing Jesus clearly? And the answer is no. Now, they've identified something about Jesus, but it is not clear at all. It is distorted. It is fuzzy. If the question is, who is Jesus, and your answer is, Elijah. Is that who Jesus is? Or if your answer is, Elijah, are you not seeing clearly who Jesus is? If the answer is Elijah, then you are like the man who says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Or one of the prophets, even more generic. Is that who Jesus is? Is he just one of the prophets? No, you're not seeing clearly. See, the miracle is an illustration of that which is happening in the society. They do not see Jesus clearly. Oh, they all recognize something about him. They all recognize some power, some abilities. Oh, there are those who deny it. Think back to our passage this morning. How does that John 10 passage end? It ends with this great dispute, right? Some say, what? Some say he's demon-possessed. Some people say he's insane. What do other people say? Yeah, but... Would a demon-possessed person heal the what? Blind. They all know he can do something. But they are not sure who he is. And how many in our age today do not see Jesus clearly today. Oh, they don't answer with the same words, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, except, of course, if you're Muslim. Because that's still their answer. Who is Jesus? He's one of the prophets. But they do not see clearly. They attest to many of the things that Jesus said that Jesus did, but they do not see clearly Jesus. He's just one of the prophets. Oh, there would be those who would say he's a great teacher. There would be those who would say he's a moral example for us to follow. There would be those in the Mormon church who would say, who is Jesus? He is a creation of God. Some would say he's an angel. 
Others would say he's just a man but not divine. Others would say he's divine but not a man. And in our society and in our age today, there would be those who would say, Jesus who? Because they've never even heard of him. And you don't have to cross an ocean. You just have to cross the street. There are many who do not see Jesus clearly. But who do you say that I am? You are Christ. You are the Christ. This is the answer Jesus has been looking for. This is the answer that is to be given. This is what seeing Jesus clearly looks like. That when you see Jesus, you see Christ. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the one who leads. He is the one that I am following. And Jesus set his face straight for Jerusalem. And they followed him. Jesus is the one who leads his people as the anointed king, as the anointed Messiah, as Christ. Christos is the key. That is the answer to life. That is the answer to life's most important question. Who is Jesus? Here is his disciples' glorious, beautiful response. You are the Christ. Oh, all that goes with that, and all that comes with that answer. Those words out of the mouth of Peter are divinely inspired words. Jesus says in Matthew in regards to this answer, this didn't come from you, Peter. This came from my Father who is in heaven. Because you see, that answer never comes from the human heart. That answer can come only from the Father. So if tonight, when I ask you the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And your answer is, he is the Christ. That answer comes not from you. That answer is a gift from the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the passion and compassion of this miracle of Jesus, for his desire that those who are blind with sin might see, might see not just partially, but might see fully, plainly, 
who he is. Father, we thank you for your grace that has opened our eyes that we might see the Christ, the Son, the living God, Jesus. In his name we pray. God's people saying, amen.